Well, welcome. Welcome. Let me pray and uh, we'll get underway. Father, we uh, thank you. We thank you for this is opportunity to, to be together to discuss um, some more weighty issues. Father, I, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have inspired it. You uh, have breathed it out. You have given us both general and specific revelation about yourself, and we um, praise you for that. Father, as we look at the, the doctrine of inerrancy today, Father, just uh, solidify our hearts to understand the importance of this. And uh, Father, we pray that uh, today will be helpful as we learn to love you more, as we learn to grow uh, into you. Pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, last week we did a, a, a sort of a, a bit of an overview. We looked at inspiration and, and textual criticism. Uh, from last week, we uh, had a proposed definition of inspiration, and I've written that down for you here. It's uh, God superintended the writing of his message through human authors in their own styles so that the message is totally without error in the wording of the original documents. So if someone was to come to you and they said, look, I really don't understand what you mean by God inspiring his word, what would be the, the key two verses that you would take them to? Second Timothy three sixteen. We discussed that at length last week, right? What was the other one? Hmm? There's many verses in Peter, James. That's not one Peter three sixteen. No. One Peter one twenty and twenty one. My challenge to you <laughs> this week is to memorize those two verses. Okay, so we've got 2 Timothy 3.16 and 1 Peter 1.20-21. What is the major principle in 2 Timothy 3.16 that we get from that verse when it comes to inspiration of God's word? Yeah, let's go back a little bit on that. Look at Bibles, the Bible. You're free to use the, the best reference tool in the world. Inspired by God, yeah. Rebuking and training in righteousness, yeah. So the key thing there is it's the only time the word is used in all of Scripture, God breathed. All Scripture is God-breathed. NIV says inspired. Some of the more literal translations will say God-breathed, and that's probably a better way. It's theokokos, and it's a, a better word. So all Scripture is God-breathed. What does 1 Peter 1, 20 and 21 tell us? Hmm? 2 Peter? Yeah, it is 2 Peter. Yeah, well, you know, it was, it was that vague reference you gave me, James. I, I thought I'd give it a give it a guess. Second Peter. Sorry, my error. So, what does Second Peter tell us? Uh, 
Yeah, so there's a human authorship to this book, right? Someone had to humanly write it down. And how did that happen? This verse tells us how it happened. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's a beautiful picture. It's a sailing ship. Being pushed along by the wind. That's the word that carried is there. And, and you see the synergy of that word when it comes to God breathed in Second Timothy. God breathed it out and the prophets were carried along by the Spirit of God to write what we have here. So that would be the two key verses on inspiration. Last week also we had a look at a little bit at textual criticism and uh, the importance of that. I just wanted to give you a couple of examples of that. If you go to the appendix of your notes, you will find these two hopefully helpful examples. You'll have uh, the NET Bible there uh, of John 23 on that page and you'll have the Greek on the back side of it. Okay. The other page you have is a, a copy out of the UBS, United Bible Society, New Testament Greek. Remember last week we talked about papyri and unicles and minuscules and the different documents we have? That one there gives you an example of the, the coding system that we now have under textual criticism for different scrolls and different manuscripts, etc., Okay. So it's just for interest's sake, I'm not going to ask you to do any homework on it, but you can see there it's only um, one page there, you can see the manuscript number, P1 for instance, the contents, E stands for epistles, location is in Philadelphia at the moment, and the date of that was the 3rd century, that's what the 3 stands for. Okay. So the, the, when it comes to textual criticism, these things are quite handy. If you go to the Greek page, and I, I don't expect you to understand that, and that's fine, but if you go to that Greek page there, that's a copy of uh, John chapter 20. And in verse 30 and 31, uh, you've got there. Now, that reads, you know what that is. It's a purpose statement of John. Uh, now Jesus performed many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in the book. But these are recorded so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. <coughs> That's the NET English translation of those two verses. Just by way of example, if you see on verse 31 there, can you track 31? You've got Tata de Graphiaire, Hina Pistuotis. See with Pistuotis, you've got a number five at the end of it, right? And I'll give you a little arrow down to it, to a little commentary in the bottom, and that's an alternative reading, a different word, and uh, then it states the evidence of that reading, and it states the, the scrolly thing and the ACDLNW all relate to something here, 
English-wise, they've made it easy for you. The NET has made it very easy for you. That's why that's a, a good translation. If you look at the NET, uh, you have the verse at the top, and then you have all the textual notes. And between the two lines, you see um, the textual note 9. If you've got good eyesight, you'll see that. And then you'll see a commentary on this. A, a difficult textual variant is present at this point in the Greek text. And it will go to explain what that difficulty is. Because the, the, the issue, broadly speaking, is, is, is the text a present or aorist subjunctive? So it's, they're trying to determine what type of verb it is. And that makes quite a difference in translation. And you can read the commentary on that particular verse there to help you out. Uh, so that's just uh, something that I know you may be interested in. Uh, so in this particular example, if you read the, uh, the commentary based on the NET, it tells you why. It's a present subjunctive. Uh, it reads that you may hold the faith. If it's an aorist, that you may come to believe. That's the way you would translate it. So you can see it's quite significant. The upshot of it, and you can get this off the, the Greek manuscript here, is it gives it a C rating for the alternative, which means probably not likely based on the evidence. That's what the NET comes to. And hence, you'll have it translated. Uh, but these are recorded so that you may believe. Okay? So that's the type of stuff that, that's going on in that textual area. I just thought I'd give you a, a simple example. Is that helpful? Not helpful? So what, I think the upshot of that is have great confidence in the English translations you have. Because in behind those translations, the good ones, this type of work is going on. Um, I'll just say a little bit about Bible translations. It's what we call a translation. We have translations. You understand, when, when does the first English translation come into being? Does anyone know roughly? Yeah, that was the form of English year. So how many years ago? 1300. 1400. So what's the most famous English translation? King James, right? So that was 400 years ago. Okay, the most famous is King James. With their translation philosophy, because they didn't have the, I guess, the uh, archaeological evidence we now have, as a basis for their translation, it was really an interpretation of the Vulgate, which was the Latin version of the Bible. Okay, so what, what, is, what could be a concern about that? Yeah, it's simple, isn't it? It's translation of a translation. Okay, 
So your later, more modern translations from about the 18th and 19th century onwards, more of the more of these older manuscripts and papyri and Erasmus uh, during the Reformation produced a Greek New Testament based on the more original documents, and then translators started using that. There's two types of major schools of translation. Uh, one is called a dynamic equivalent. And one is called, one of a better word, I'll just put literal. Okay. Your dynamic equivalence would be something like an NIV, where it will make some interpretive calls for you. Okay, so they'll, they'll look at the text, they'll go back to the original documents, but then they will make a call from an interpretation perspective and place that into the text. A literal translation, what would be the literal translations? NASB, New American Standard, yeah, ESV, NET, I'd put up there. I'd put, um, so dynamic equivalent, and uh, one at the moment that's going around is the NLT, New Living Translation. Good translation. But literal is, uh, more, it's more wooden, what we would call more wooden in its nature. So when you read it, it doesn't flow can be a little bit stop-starty because it's trying to get back to the original flow of the text. Whereas uh, a dynamic equivalent... Now, dynamic equivalents are fantastic for Old Testament because Hebrew, at its base language, is far more poetic. Hebrew is more about ideas and concepts, whereas Greek is more about facts and and uh, truth. All right? So if you ask me what would be the ideal Bible, I would say I would love a NIV Old Testament and a NASB New. All right? Or ESV New. A mix of those would be really nice. Because I think the dynamic equivalence does a great job with poetry, with historical narrative of the Hebrew language. But I'm saying that the Hebrew language is a more poetic language than Greek. So hence for a dynamic equivalence is quite a good thing for that type of language. Okay? That's just a statement. Um, Yeah, so what is more, anyway, that's, I'll just throw that out there so you understand a little bit about translations. We here now have moved more to an ESV translation across the board because it's more literal, great for the New Testament. Interesting, you see, different message. Well, a different message with a dynamic equivalence, sometimes the translator will give you an interpretation. Okay. Will be more literal than an NIV. The ESV is not. None of the translations. You've got to make calls at times on how you from one language to another. Yeah, you've got to make a call, and, and on different things. And you know, this is a prime example on John, right? The call is made. Ha! Huh, 
the manuscript evidence, the older evidence, the more difficult reading is the more preferred, as we talked about last week. So therefore we'll go with, you have believed. Did you, you know? say once, too, that um, the New American is literal for the words, yep. whereas the ESV is literal for the sentences, and they tend to not do what the New American does, which tries to do it really literally, and it doesn't actually work as well as not as Phrases, they'll, they'll play with that. Yeah, that would be probably a translation philosophy of ESV, yeah. So, pick my interest, you speak different messages, what would mean exactly what would be interested quite important in you. You want to go one by one, different message, then it should be. Yeah, I, I would think um, the best thing is to have a couple of good translations. Okay, so you have your NIV. If you, if you look, the reality is in Australia, the NIV would be the predominant Bible used in Bible-believing churches. I'm saying 95% of that's okay, but there'll be some stuff in there that you just got to be aware of. And I would ha always have next to it if you're studying, particularly, have a good literal English translation like NASB. To cross check it. They can do. They put a different slant. They can. What I'll do next time we meet, I'll give you an example. I'll grab. I'll grab two examples to show you how a different reading could affect could affect your interpretation of that passage. Look, I don't think it's 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 never in the core doctrines. Okay. It's never in the divinity of Christ or you know, his resurrection or those sorts of things. But sometimes you will see a, a variant reading. Last week um, we talked about 1 John 5, where the traditional King James Version has this alternate reading in there which talks about the Trinity. It's just not in the original manuscripts. So it's, a, it's an addition by a scribe, and we just talked about that from a scribal edition type thing, and, and really it, you got to be aware of those things. For instance, you know, let's just, we'll play a little bit with this, just so you understand, and this is not the difference between dynamics and literal, but it's more textual, the ending of Mark. Go to the, go to the book of Mark, right? If you go to Mark... We all know in all English Bibles, or good translations now, you will have a footnote. You'll have a footnote that saying um, that the end of the book is in Mark 16, verse 8. Okay? And the rest should have it in brackets, right? So from. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include Mark 16, 9 to 20. The only reason that we have this in our Bibles today is because the King James Version put it in there and we're not we're afraid to take it out. Okay. Because from a textual perspective, the manuscript is just not there. This is a, a and then you can start working through the totally different styled issues between Mark 1, 1 through to 16, 8 and this, this final portion. Uh, it, yeah, so it seems that in the 3rd or 4th or 5th century, 
They just didn't like the ending of Mark. It was too abrupt. So they wanted to add in something into this. And, uh, but this, oh, it's just, just not there. Or was it? Well, the, the original manuscript doesn't have it. It's not there. It just stops. The original manuscript just stops. The original manuscript stops in eight. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I think that's more urban legend in some ways. Yeah. But textually, it just isn't there. So it's a late edition. So you say, okay, that's fine. And actually, as you go through, um, I notice this when we're starting through either Luke or through Mark in the last few years, you'll go through your English Bible and all of a sudden you'll see a skipping verse. Have you noticed that? You go from verse 38 to 40. The verse is gone. That's because manuscript evidence has now dictated that. Yeah. Anyway, so that was just an aside from last week. Now, we get on to this week. Get on to this week. Inerrancy. How would you define inerrancy? What is inerrancy? Is it important? What do you think? Yes? Yeah. Which bits you want to apply to your life, which bits you don't. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, we're going to get to that. <laughs> Norm Geisler defines inerrancy in the following way. Uh, he uses a term called unlimited inerrancy. There's a quote here on your, on your page. I think this is a good term. Uh, he define it in this way as a response to a book that was written. Uh, are you guys aware of the, the Counterpoint series of books? Okay, The Counterpoint series of books sometimes are very good, like it will say the three views of the millennium or the five views of the rapture or the five views of Calvinism, the five views of Arminianism, and it will have certain authors write their view. So it's a, they're, they're a good set of, of books for looking at what the issues are across different theological streams. Uh, there was a book that came out on the five views of inerrancy. Have a think about that. Even a title like that, even writing a book like that. And this is Geyser's response to that. He says, and inerrancy in the following way is, is unlimited inerrancy affirms that the Bible is true on whatever subject it speaks. No, probably not. Norm Guy's a theologian for many years, uh, still alive. Uh, systematic theologian, you can buy his, his works. He's was at Dallas Theological Seminary, 
I think he's now at, uh, I'm not sure actually where he's at, but he's in the back of California. He's an incredible apologist, Norm Geisler, and one of his really strong, he's one of the leading voices against errancy, if you like. So that's where Norm sits. Um, we had the privilege many years ago of being under his ministry on different subjects to inerrancy. Uh, it was fantastic. Yeah, so Norm Geiser defines it this way. Unlimited inerrancy affirms that the Bible is true on whatever subject it speaks, whether it is redemption, ethics, history, science, or whatever. Limited inerrancy affirms that the Bible's inerrancy is limited to redemptive matters. Okay. The backdrop of this whole debate of inerrancy is something that has brewed since about 1820. Prior to 1820, there was never any dispute that what we had was God's word and it was without errors. So this is a, a modern phenomena. And this modern phenomena has been driven by German theologians, liberal German theologians. They, they started the thing. And it, it flowed from the 19th to the 20th century. It was really starting to have a, quite a major impact among evangelicalism in the, in the early part of the 20th century. And we've seen, we've seen this, where people dispute and doubt the miracles, right? Where they say, no, nah, that, that's supernatural, that can't happen, it's beyond the laws of nature, therefore the message is false. And it's this type of thinking that has... I went through Princeton originally as a seminary in the States and then flowed into the rest of the evangelical world and has, is still, still there today. So in 1978, in Chicago, the uh, Evangelical Society decided to, to really get serious about this because an attack on inerrancy is an attack on Scripture, as you've pointed out. And they, uh, they set up a statement, and I was going to copy that for you, which I will for next week. That's one thing I forgot to copy. I set up a statement, and here it is. The Chicago Statement on Biblical Inerrancy. And it is a lengthy statement, there's a short statement, and then there's articles of affirmation and denial. And this became the leading document to uphold uh, this as being God's word. And in their statement in Article 12, it says this, The authority of Scripture is inescapably impaired to this total divine inerrancy, is in a way limited or disregarded, or made relative to a view of truth contrary to the Bible's own. So it's saying if you, if you hold to anything other than this view, then what's the point? So if you turn over there, we've got... Um, we're just going to explore this inerrancy. Explore what it means, why it is important, 
and uh, why it is significant. You know, I think a really good working definition of inerrancy is without error. That's a real simple one, right? And there's two kinds of error. There's textual errors, which uh, we refer to as variants. We talked about that last week. So there are textual errors. We've seen an example of that with those manuscripts. No one uh, ever denies that these exist. It's scribal error. As things are being copied and uh, as we have more ancient manuscripts, it's difficult to read certain letters and certain emphasis and things like that. So there is scribal error. No one denies that. <clears throat> but this is not the heart of the inerrancy issue. The heart of it is there, are, is there actual errors made by the original authors that occurred in the original autographs. That's the heart of it. So when God moved by the Holy Spirit through the human author from this transmission from God-breathedness through, say if I was Amos, uh, as I was writing, is there an error that has occurred because in that process? That's what's being considered under this view of inerrancy. And there's predominantly three contemporary views, but now probably five, but I'll go back to three. There's the liberal view that denies inerrancy because a liberal will deny inspiration. These, thing, these two things, inspiration and inerrancy, are together. Can't have one without the other. And uh, so a liberal will deny both. They deny that, that uh, Scripture is God-breathed, therefore they'll say it is a human origin, therefore there will be errors. A liberal holds to a natural inspiration view. And it's a consistent view in their, their mindset. Whereas an evangelical, or an orthodox evangelical, I'll use that term, or a formed evangelical for another term, or I don't like using this term, but the fundamentalist evangelical who says, okay, the word of God is the word of God. Um, they will affirm inerrancy of scripture because it affirms inspiration. They see a logical connection between the two. Okay, If it's God-breathed, if it's inspired by God, therefore, because of God's character, because of his nature, it must be. It must be inerrant. Then you have a neo-evangelical, which would say, uh, they wish to affirm inspiration, but they deny inerrancy. Okay? Yeah, so neo-evangelical, yeah, 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 the, the Word of God is inspired by God. But we have a bit of an issue here. It can't be completely true. It's got to have some errors in it. So in this view, inspiration itself has to be defined in a limited way. Uh, 
there's some really confusing vocab around inerrancy. You may also get confused over verbal, plenary, infallible, unlimited. All these words have been thrown around. No wonder we're confused. <laughs> it is complicated. So, so what, what, what's happened is as we start thinking through inerrancy, uh, we get slight variations of it. Uh, I think in our statement we may put plenary. You've, you've probably heard this. We believe in the plenary inspiration of Scripture. What does that mean? It's just an attempt to say we believe it's without error. But there are some confusing vocabs that go on around the place. So I've given... Yeah. Wouldn't you expect that, like, when something's complicated, if you have a simple solution and then you rub it up against reality, then people... You know, because you hear a lot of people turn away from the faith that, oh, Pharaoh sold horses for only 600, 700, 600, whatever they come up with. And they think, you know, we've been taught it's supposed to be perfectly within error. And this creates... Oh, and maybe it's because we put onto some things uh, something that it shouldn't be. You know, we're trying to make our cat a dog when it's not supposed to. Are we actually applying a filter to it that we might be actually creating problems? Especially if it comes from the 1850s and not from the church fathers or apostolic fathers or, you know, what did they think? Yeah, I think you're right, James. I think it does create an issue and more man starts to think and, and get entrenched in probably the philosophy of the world, the more he questions that biblical authority. And uh, so I think that's also an issue. And the whole without error thing is questioning biblical authority. And uh, I think those things are like a triangle. You've got inspiration, inerrancy and authority. And uh, the liberal was saying, well, actually, I want to be the captain of my own destiny. And I want to move the, the authority of Scripture away from my life. So then they'll concoct some other ways of trying to deal with that. But I'm going to address the issue about historicity shortly. So we might get there. Um, you see, the doctrine of inerrancy is important in four areas it's attached to the character of God now you can't divorce it from that all scripture is inspired by God it is a foundation for all other essential doctrines it's something we, we, we must always remember if you have a Bible full of errors then what does that mean for salvation? What part of the atonement will you believe and what part of the atonement won't you believe? If you have errors in this document, what do you think about Christ? You're only limited by your imagination, really, aren't you? So it's important there. It is taught in the scriptures. We'll come to that point. It's always been the historic position of the Christian church that the word of God is without error. So that's a weight of evidence that 
the liberals are trying to fight against those four things. Here's another definition for you to consider. I won't read it out. It's there. Uh, and we'll just start talking through some of these issues. This by no means will be exhaustive, but it's designed just to get you thinking through this issue. See, what does it imply? What does inerrancy Im Im imply? It implies that all the facts must be known to solve some problems. So inerrancy recognises that our knowledge of some historical facts is limited. It does recognise that. When we look at God's word, not every historical fact is in there. But the ones that are there are correct. Uh, see, I'll give you an example. There's a guy a while ago, Edwin Thickle. He was trying to wrestle with the differences in numbers in the Old Testament. Okay. And the mysterious numbers of the Hebrew kings. And he solved the problem in this way. Uh, well, why is there an apparent contradiction between the kings lists and kings and chronicles? Okay, if you put the list side by side, you get different outcomes. What's going on here? Does that make the Bible full of errors? The question is, well, all the facts must be known to solve the problem. So he showed that the northern and southern kingdoms used different methods of computing the ascension year. Okay, so the north kingdom... Uh, would use an anti-dating system like Egypt. They would account the ascension year of the king as one. Whereas the southern kingdom was using a post-dating system like Mesopotamia. They did not count the ascension year. The first year was the next year. And uh, in 800 BC, Israel changed to the post-dating system. And that's reflected in those books. So they're not historically inaccurate, but once all the facts are known, the problem is solved. Okay, you understand that? Yeah, that's just one area. That's what inerrancy implies. That we've got to just... I love that uh, movie. Uh, what's the one, honey, where... Guy goes into space. Apollo 13. Apollo 13. Have you guys seen Apollo 13? Yeah. Yeah. What happens is you've got a crisis in space. And the major line, I think, in the movie is when the guy in the control tower is saying, folks, we're going to lose them. you just got to work the problem. Let's work the problem. Let's get a solution. And sometimes in the Bible it's about that. It's not that because it's an error, it's that we don't understand enough of the culture around about it to understand how it's been written. That numbering one would be a simple one there. Uh, second thing, inerrancy only applies to the text of the original documents. Okay. See, bad copies or bad translations aren't either inspired or inerrant. 
that's fair comment, isn't it? You know, I asked last week uh, how many of you guys have, have written down uh, scripture. Okay, you, you take your Bible, you look at it, you take your pad, and you're writing away, writing away, writing away. You go back a few months later and have a look what you wrote, you'll find an error. Okay? Because it's just a transcription error. So, my, so if I'm writing out the book of Luke, my written book of Luke, one is not inspired, and two, it's not without error. So I would have done something there. But the originals are without error. Why? God moved and carried along by the Holy Spirit men who wrote. Okay? Key. Um, another view of an emergency which goes a little bit further down to uh, interpretation is that scriptural texts are interpreted by scripture. Nearest only applies to what scripture affirms. See, not all statements are intended to be theologically true. Lies and false advice are accurately reported in the text, but context will determine their veracity. You know, the counsel of Job's friends, the lie of Satan in Genesis. Inerrancy affirms that all truths are affirmed as true. This includes scientific and historical information as well as spiritual and theological truth. What inerrancy does not imply is perfect grammar. Talked about that. It's not a divine textbook. And please realise the chapters and verses. (laughs) I know you know this. They're our invention. Chapters and verses are there for us to uh, to reference things quickly. Let me give an example of that. I'll give a really quick example of that. So if you Bible's turn to John chapter 14. John 14. John 14.1. Let, uh, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me and my Father's house. Many rooms. If it were not so, uh, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go to prepare a place for you, I'll come again. And will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. I might, yeah, okay, uh, etc. Comes the statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, contextually, where are we sitting in the Gospel of John? Straight after the Last Supper, isn't it? So we're in, the, we're in this upper room discourse, what we commonly call upper room discourse. So you've got, yeah. So chapters 13 to 17, you have the context of what's going on. Okay, so this is what has happened just proceeding to here. You've got chapter 13, Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He gives them an example to follow. Judas, the betrayer, leaves. He gives the command now, uh, a new command I give unto you, love one another as I have loved you. 
And then something significant happens. And then we hit chapter 14. If you look in your Bibles, what have you got there? Come in, you got an NIV? Yeah. Good. Where's the paragraph break? In this portion of Scripture. So back in verse 36 of chapter 13, there's a paragraph break. Uh, you got 37, 36. Yeah, that's not very helpful, actually. Okay. That's why it's only nearly inspired. <laughs> nearly inspired version. <laughs> In the ESV, you, you have... Who has ESVs here? Anyone have ESVs? So you see the ESV editorially helps you because it puts a little paragraph in there like it would have been in a Word document. Okay? So it will tell you that the paragraph actually starts at 13... 36. So you've got the broader context of the upper room discourse, and then you've got this paragraph that runs through to 14 7. So, and I don't know why we've put chapter 14 1 in the middle there. Because it breaks the unit of thought, breaks the context. This uh, beautiful compassionate thing the Lord says loses all its impact if you don't have those first three verses with it. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? <laughs> Jesus answered him, where I'm going, you cannot follow me now. That could be two places. You cannot follow me to the cross or you cannot follow me to heaven. Could be one or two options there. You can't follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. And then beautiful, impetuous Peter says, Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Question mark. Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. In my father's house there are many mansions. You see how chapter 14, if you just read from there, breaks up the, the beautiful, loving response that Jesus gives to Peter, even though he's just revealed he's going to deny him. Jesus just displays to him what love for one another is all about. He's done it on two occasions already. He's washed their feet. He, com- he gets rid of Judas and he commands them. Now love one another. And then shows it. Even as he transmits the denial of Peter to him. Don't let your trial- hearts be troubled. So that's... Um, yeah. I don't know what fueled that question, but... Yeah. Most likely. And I think I think we're getting better. Look, it's, it would be impossible for us to find chapter and verse, wouldn't it, if we didn't have that numbering system. But I just think it's wise to understand that as you look back and study God's word, look for your paragraph breaks, look for your big units of thought. You know, this 
you can never interpret John 14 without considering John 13 through 17. The upper room discourse. You cannot. You cannot divorce them. Because this is all going on. And um, and then you look for your little... The technical term for this is pericope. You look for the little bit that uh, is coming through here. All right. Sorry, you sidetracked me, darling. I don't know if you did that on purpose or not. So... Um, Inerrancy doesn't uh, imply perfect grammar or uh, perfect chapter and verse divisions. <laughs> okay, they're not inspired. They're there to help us. Uh, inerrancy doesn't imply ex- exhaustive truth. Okay, think about it. The Bible makes no claim to contain all truth exhaustively, but the truth it does claim. Is exhaustive. All right. It only claims what it does record as accurate. Would that also include, say, for example, Jesus is going to teach something? Yep. Well, they're going to teach something. They're not actually going to. Um, let's say, for example, when Jesus talks about hell, and, um, it's not actually hell. It's actually uh, Lazarus in the, you know, with. Um, Abraham, the bosom of Abraham, and the rich man. Yeah, yeah. He's not really teaching about that particular event or what it's like when you die and so forth, but he's trying to talk about how you treat the poor and so forth. Um, is uh, probably a better example would be a lot of times they might teach something again, they'll pick something out of the culture and they're trying to get a spiritual or theological point across. <laughs> and that is what you would say is inerrant, you know, this. But that example they get across, they're not trying to teach, they're just using because it's something people believe, people thought about. And it's not trying to teach you about agriculture or the cosmic uh, layout or whatnot, is it? No, with Jesus, he, he uses common day practices around about him to say, okay, this is like. Yeah. Uh, well, also, for example, the three tier idea of heaven, you know, the concept. <coughs> There and the boats here, and then it's just above the clouds is heaven, and that's what they believed. Yeah. And for us to say that's that wouldn't be inerrant because that's what they believed, and they talked about that, really. But we wouldn't believe that to be the way to understand it today because we're not an, uh, an ancient culture. You know, we're more. We have more scientific. See, inerrancy doesn't imply that the language of 20th century science or other disciplines, um, it doesn't, inerrancy doesn't say, we don't look at the biblical culture through the lens of those things. I think that that's been a great era in the last 20 or 200 years, where science has started to trump everything, and then they say, okay, well, to look correctly at scripture, we've got to try and prove this through a scientific formula. That's... That is an issue. That is an issue because then you're actually saying it is errant. And and every other person prior to 1850 is an error. But no, Scripture's God breathed. Um, it's called you know um, 
It's a language that describes an event or truth from the human observer's viewpoint. So that's what you're actually doing, right? So you're, you're trying to describe that event from a human point. Uh, well, there's lots of them in the Old Testament. Yeah, there are. And the um, earth doesn't move and all these sort of things. Yeah. Clouds are held by the mountains as pillars. But they really believe those sort of things. And they mention them, but they don't actually teach it, you know. This is not something God wants to teach us. He's trying to teach he's using it. He's using it to teach another yeah. principle about himself or or about his people. <laughs> and that's what you would say. That's an error. The message. That, that theological message, that spiritual message. Yeah, is an errant. Yep. Yep. And the big attack is from atheists to say, oh, no, look at it, it said this and this. They say, well, we, we need to find a way to explain it. This is, we're not trying to say these are correct things. There is a bunch of Christians now in America, and it's getting stronger, this idea that, oh, no, they don't believe the uh, earth's round, it's flat. Yeah. You know, you think, come on. <laughs> we can be like that too on some things, the way we try to affirm things and try and realise that these are ancient people. Let's well, you've, you've got that element of the historical context, and we're going to talk about that in the next few weeks. Okay, so you know, when the Bible was written, it was by an author for a people at that time. Okay? But then there's transcultural stuff that goes from that time to our time. So that's the what we call the historical, literal, grammatical interpretation. What you're talking about is interpretation questions. It's not actual... Uh, areas of inerrancy, you're saying, okay, how do we interpret? We accept that this is inerrant, but what techniques do you put in to make sure that you get the historical, literal, grammatical part right? So what was the author saying to the original audience, and why? And then how does that flow across the centuries to apply to you and I? And that's a preacher's task, right? That's, as a preacher, that's what I'm going to try and wrestle with all the time. I look at this text, an ancient text. How does that apply to us here and now? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. This is correct, but then you're going into the interpretation aspects. Okay. Well, what do we apply? How do we get to that to make it mean this? So that's the historical literal stuff, which basically we'll spend four weeks looking at post today. This is still foundational, saying, okay, I want you guys to go out and say, yes, this is the God's word. This is why it's God's word. Okay. What's some biblical evidence for inerrancy? I think that's a really good place to finish. So let's look at some biblical evidences for inerrancy. I really like these verses I came across not so long ago. Deuteronomy 18. It might surprise you that we go to Deuteronomy 18. That's where we're going. Verse 18. So we'll keep this nice and simple for you to remember. Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 20. Let's read this together. I will raise up uh, for them a prophet like you um, from among their brothers. So it's God speaking to Moses. 
You know, you know what Deuteronomy is? It's, it's Moses' final farewell speech to his people. They've wandered the land for 40 years. He leaves this with them and Joshua before they cross over. So I'll raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. But the prophet who presumes to speak a word in my name that I have not commanded him to speak, or who speaks in the name of other gods, that same prophet shall die. This affirms inerrancy, because it's saying that God's standard of accuracy is 100%. Isn't it? What does it say? Let's read that very carefully. I will raise this prophet up. I will put my words. Whose words are going into whose mouth? God's words are going into the prophet's mouth. And he shall speak to them all that I have commanded him. Scripture itself affirms its own accuracy. Uh, if you wanted to, you could turn to John 10.35. It's this dialogue with uh, Jesus and the Pharisees, I think. Memory? He quotes out of Psalm, Psalm 82. John 10.35. Uh, Jesus answered him, 34, it is not written in your law, I said you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the Father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said I am the Son of God. He takes a statement, an obscure statement out of Psalm 82 verse 6, and he uses it. The point of the context is that Jesus was about to be stoned for blasphemy. And simply by referring to himself as having uh, divine authority. What he's saying by using this is that you should use divine scripture to test your claims to whether my deity is true. So God's word is the standard by which these things should be measured because it is completely inerrant. We all know the famous Matthew 5, not one jot or tittle shall depart. That shows that the importance of the details of God's word is important. Scripture uses small details as crucial and important theological arguments and discussions. Um, the famous one in Matthew 22, 43-45, once again a dialogue with the Pharisees and, and David says, uh, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord, where he says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under the feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? So uh, scripture uses a small detail by just a, a, an ending in the word Lord the different names of God is sufficient for Jesus to build this argument for his deity and messiahship. 
he grabs Psalm 110. That's a quote from Psalm 110. And there's different names for God in that Psalm. And he uses that, that small thing. Jesus did the same thing in Matthew 22. The importance of the verb tense. I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Jesus built the doctrine of his resurrection on the fact that God uses the present tense and not the past tense in that verse. Okay, it's important. And even the importance of a singular word, which you'll get in Galatians 3 where he talks about seed as opposed to seeds, and he has that argument in Galatians 3. So inerrancy is proved from Scripture. I think I'm going to leave that there at the moment. Any questions? They don't fall into interpretation. They're just talking about inerrancy. By grammar, well, see, some of the scribal guys, when they copied, would change some of the grammar to make it more smooth reading, etc. Not in the original autographs, right? So Jesus knew the original autographs. But we read that the inerrancy only refers to the original autographs. Yep. The scribal change of grammar is outside of this definition. Yeah, I would think so. So, so when when we we define that grammar is not included in the inerrancy, how would that sit with what we're saying now? When Jesus said, "I am, I am the God of Abraham, Jacob," and using the present tense, yes, he said in the past, and I was the God of something like that. Well, you'd have to go he's using grammar. Yeah, he's using he's using uh, an is he using grammar there? Or is he just using what the original documents say? Right, he's quoting out of Psalm. Yeah, but they're. they're well, I shall go back and I'll read the statement about grammar because I think that's important to clarify. It's important to clarify for you because I think that's. Yeah, it's a good question. What I said, I should have said, what it does not imply is perfect grammar. Grammar is a human observation of how a language functions. It's not a divine textbook. Grammatical abbreviations are not errors. Often literally style is enhanced by deliberate expectations to grammatical rules. So I think you're more likely to have the issue as we go from original language, from Greek and Hebrew and Aramaic, into English. Because we will have grammatical, stylistic things we do to try and make that readable in our language. Okay? And that's what we're saying, that inerrancy doesn't imply that that process is error-free. Okay. 
The thing here, the thing, the thing, it is still inspired, but we're saying there is a, there is this process of transmission that occurs for us to have God's word in our English language, right? With relation to Jesus, he's the author of the book. So when he quotes, when he quotes the book, it's going to be quoted perfectly, correct? Well, I think so. <laughs> yes. Yes. Please say yes, Kevin. <laughs> Yeah. He, he quoted the 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 Talmud. Okay, that's what he quoted. He quoted the scrolls that he had, and he was actually it was probably an affirmation of the the accuracy of that as well, because he used it as a deep theological argument. Yeah. Most likely, or could have been known Greek. I don't know. We don't know the common language that he spoke at that, at different times. Most likely Aramaic. The Greek. They all quote from different. There's all different sources. Whenever when you go through the New Testament, that's one of the the major um, beautiful discoveries. At the moment, we look at the quotes that come from the Old, and the first thing to determine has it come from the Hebrew or has it come from the Greek? Has it come from the Septuagint or has it come from the Hebrew manuscript? And and it's about a fifty-fifty split through the New Testament, actually. Which one have they used, and why are they using that? So you would think about Paul. What he would probably more likely quote the Hebrew because he's a rabbinic scholar. But that's not the case. Whereas someone like John quotes the Hebrew more than he does the Greek. So yeah, I don't think you can make a call one way or the other um, on that. Yeah. The thing is, when he quoted a scripture, he would have known the heart of his audience, and he knew that his audience would know what he was quoting and why. Okay, I think that's something you've got to realise with Jesus as well. He knew how to direct the argument. He knew their hearts. He, everything was revealed to him. Unlike you and I. But grammar doesn't, what the point I'm trying to make, grammar doesn't mm. prove an inerrancy. Oh. Okay? Perfect grammar doesn't prove inerrancy. Mm. That's the issue. Mm. What proves inerrancy is God breathes. Men moved by the Spirit of God and carried along by the Holy Spirit to write. So are you saying the message is inerrant? <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying the original autographs are inerrant. There can be nothing else other than that. Otherwise you're reducing God to someone who makes errors. And it's against his character. 
what we have now here. Yes. God breathes. In the original autographs, we have a, a version of that. I would suggest that 99.5% of what we have there is pretty jolly close. It's point five of, and that's what this textual criticism stuff is all about. That's the point in Second Timothy. I think is the start. It says all scripture. Yep. So if you have, let's say you have a transcribal mistake or a, yep. a grammar mistake or whatnot, if you have an idea of the message of a certain truth or whatever, it have, it have to apply to all scripture, and that gives it valid, um, makes it valid. Because it only applies to one or two points and it really struggles or contra, contradicts with other areas, then you would say we've got a problem. But, you know, when we have our truth and that, that we get taught and so forth, yep. it fits in with the rest of Scripture. And it's this idea that, you know, like, when, I think Peter also says something about uh, how do we know what we talk about is true. You look at all the Scripture and all the Scripture rather than just, hey, there's a special verse in Habakkuk that will explain why Jesus is the Messiah, etc. He points, he pushes to the whole point all scripture reveals this, this truth, which I think is helpful to understand. Yeah, all scripture is inspired by God. No, because you use all scripture, talking about everything that is the scripture or the scripture as a whole. I think it's not the scripture as a whole, or scripture, which we are trying to say. It's everything is scripture, <coughs> not the scripture as a whole. All scriptures and stuff. Everything in scripture means all scripture. No, as a whole, all scriptures. As a whole, is inspired. No, you must do one to as a whole, it's inspired. So one verse may be wrong, but it be corrected by the other part of scripture. Well, it all... Say, for example, if you have three or four different parts in the Old Testament and you have an idea this should be this should be interpreted a certain way if it conflicts with these other parts, you would say you really have to rethink that. You're going back to interpretation. interpretation yeah. We're not talking about interpretation. We're talking about Scripture as being inspired by God. Everything. Yeah. Not as a whole. Okay. Yeah. It's God breathed out. That's the fundamental principle around inerrancy. Inspiration and inerrancy are together. That very fact. What you're starting to talk through here is, well, how do I interpret this? That's a different discussion which we'll have in the next few weeks. Because there's many methods of interpretation, and that's where we have so much division. Okay. And, and even with the, this inerrancy debate, the division is now being caused because people don't believe that God's word is inerrant. And that's an affront to God's character. Okay? I'll put that out quite strongly. If you do not believe in inerrancy, you are starting to say, well, I actually don't believe the God who breathed it got it right. And he's preserved it and he's passed it down through generation through generation for us so it becomes our rule and, and guide for faith. Many Christians that do believe it's inspired and, and without mistake, so they're trying to... They twist it, but they don't. They don't actually, because even the limited inerrancy, to believe that, you're starting to fool with the fundamental characteristic that it's God-breathed.
than the original autographs. Anyway, we're going to close it there. And we can have the debate offline, because I don't want to record the debate. <laughs> <laughs>